Hello and welcome to a fascinating podcast. This time we're discussing with Ray Roussel, who specializes in activating international brands in the Chinese market, including brands such as the PGA of America, the PGA Tour, and some fairly important sports professionals like Rory McIlroy and Tiger Woods. Ray is currently working on a really interesting project which we discuss in this conversation and it's actually fairly unique. It's about building a large-scale commercial model for a golf participation project. Adam, what should people be looking out for in this conversation? For me, it was just how incredibly knowledgeable Ray was about what's going on across different sectors around the world in golf. It just really reinforced the importance of networking and just staying connected uh, to what's happening in and around the industry. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, something that really stood out was just new ways of realizing the value that you can add to people of influence or even corporate partners outside of the golf industry to help you achieve what you're trying to do in golf. Hopefully you get some value from this conversation in the same level that Adam and I did. Enjoy. Ray, welcome to the podcast. And Ray, you are calling us from Cape Town today. Exactly. Yep. Happy to be down here in beautiful weather and tons of golf, so can't complain. Fantastic. Well, thanks a lot for taking the time. It's hugely appreciated. And our members will have heard from that introduction, some of the experiences and career history that you've had. It's fascinating. Really looking to uh, looking forward to digging into that today. So we're going to do our usual and we, we don't do too long an introduction. We just jump straight in and we ask people the hardest question for a lot, which is what would you like to change about the golf industry, but you can't? Yeah, tough one. And you sent that to me in advance and I thought about it over the weekend and tried to drop down some notes. I mean, I don't know if there's anything that I really want to change now. I think it's exciting what we see, you know, and, and uh, I played in our club champs here this weekend and, was thinking through that and and a lot of it that I've experienced during during COVID is and people talk about all the time, but it's I think non-traditional golf. So, you know, shorter forms and we see that with, you know, top golf and some of the stuff I think we'll talk about and some of the programs that we're doing. But, you know, I belong to a little nine hole course here, five minutes from my house. And one of the neat things with with this course, because it was formerly the built on the, the World Cup Stadium was built on it. So they ended up chopping it up and moving it around. And now the nine hole loops back to the clubhouse. So it's five holes on one side, four on the other. And what I found with myself playing a lot of five hole golf, especially with my wife, you know, so, you know, living in China and Hong Kong, you know, if I say I want to go play golf for her, it's like, Oh, you know, you're gone all day. Right. So it's either going across the border, even if it's in the city at the club I belong to in Hong Kong, everyone plays 18 holes. It's always breakfast, probably lunch. And it's, you know, seven, eight hours. Um, and what, you know, it's been neat during this time because we've been here 15 months is that if I say I'm going for nine, it's literally two hours and 20 minutes door to door. And I can also say, you know what, it's afternoon. I'll be back in an hour and 10 minutes and I can go play five holes and she'll do that as well. She's not a huge golfer, but you know, if I say, come down, let's play five, it's an hour. It's fine. So, you know, I think it's, getting out of that and, and thinking, how can we do a, you know, a couple of new things, shorter, fun, and everybody talks about it. But I think sometimes, and we see this a lot in Asia, especially in China, like they don't want to do it, right? It's like they have this view of what it should be and, you know, breaking out of the norm. And, and you know, 
I'm not spending tons of time, I guess, in the West uh, recently, but I think it's changing. So it's just more of that and kind of being open to some new, new stuff. In your time in China, um, I imagine you've, you've sort of been involved in a lot of conversations and looking at how you deliver a product of golf. Are they more open to having maybe those loops and the, the course design in a way that you, you can play those shorter formats? Uh, or are they still looking at what's sort of seen in maybe the West in, in 18-hole golf and wanting that, that sort of signature design grand golf course? No, I think it's the form, it's it's the latter of what you just said. I mean, if if you know the game in China, I mean, you know the the first kind of modern golf course, nineteen eighty four, I think eighty five, Chongshan Hot Springs, just just outside of Hong Kong. You know, so the game's still very young, 35, 36 years old, almost exclusively private. I think right now there's roughly five hundred golf courses, uh, five hundred eighteen hole facilities, all private, all high end. You know, it went through that big boom that most people are aware of everything's signature. I want to be number one. I want to be top 100. There's still, you know, a, a number of, I guess, kind of what we would call tycoons um, that are still chasing that. And, you know, that's still there. And I think it's going to take a long time. I mean, I, everyone has these aspirations and I think some later questions on where's the game going. It's just still so young. I mean, if you look in the U S you know, I'm from near Chicago, you know, I think first 18 hole golf club, you know, the Chicago golf club, 1894. So it's 130 years old, you know, it's still so young in China. And, and I think the hope is that the game develops and, and I guess goes lower end or, you know, there's more you know, municipal golf courses, public, uh, but right now it's still very, um, still at the high end. Yeah. It's interesting, actually, Ray, because I think what you mentioned there in both of those answers is actually a bit of a quirk of the marketing strategy for golfers, certainly in the UK and, and probably in Europe that I don't hear a lot of people or clubs or organisations talk about. And that's there's almost an assumption that the bit that we're missing out on is to properly segment the market and then create things for each of those parts of the market. But you are an example where actually you don't just want a short form of golf that you can play with your wife. You don't also just want the day-long experience that you can have in, in somewhere like China. You actually want a bit of both. So it's actually, I think a lot of people talk about, yeah, we'll create these because that's our market. We'll create these other formats over here because that's our market and they're different people. But actually we forget that we, as golfers, we might want a bit of various different opportunities at different times. I mean, I love going to Top Golf. I'd love to come and play that course you just described there, South Africa. It sounds amazing, you know, and you've got that. So for me, it's almost like more more places turning it around and looking at it as what can we offer as our half-hour golf experience? What's our one-hour golf experience? What's our family thing? What's our this? And I might want a bit of all of those different things at different times. Yeah, I think you need all that. So we have, uh, you know, a couple of our facilities. We have Top Tracer that we put in, which has been really successful. We have a Top Golf Swing Suite. Um, you know, and then I even look at, I was back in the U S in October, uh, you know, and I played Kinlock in, in Virginia, which is, I think the number one course there and, you know, exclusive, you know, we stayed in the cottage. I went with my dad and two great friends and it was that kind of classical golf experience and I loved it. Right. And, and that was fantastic. Um, and then I want to go play the five holes. You want a bit of both and, you know, and I think you see that in the U.S. as well. So whether it's like if you look at Discovery Land, uh, you've got very high end, you know, uh, but unique experiences. And I think that, again, is, is the key 
you know, they do a bunch of, if you look at like their halfway houses and, uh, you know, incredible, like, you know, hide a bottle of tequila in a tree and you don't know that unless you're with the member. And I think those kind of neat touches, um, you know, are really special, but again, yeah, you want multiple different levels to engage in the game and it'll bring uh, more people in. And you mentioned, Ray, obviously you've got a lot of experience in China and, and just for context for people listening to this, obviously you, you did your education at university in Mississippi and then a few years later, find yourself in China. Talk us through that experience because you were very, I imagine that was a bold move back then. Golf still wasn't obviously that mature in, in that part of the world. What was the drivers there and what was the culture shock like? Yeah, I mean, I, so I grew up in Wisconsin, uh, Madison, which is a college town, very liberal, went to Mississippi State, which was a culture shock in, in itself for the professional golf management program. Enjoyed that. And then actually my roommate at the time, through that program, you do typically three internships. So 18 months of internships as part of that. We had an opportunity to go to China and spend a year at, at Mission Hills uh, Resort, which I think most golfers will know now, you know, huge 22 golf courses, all that. When we went, there was two golf courses and it was a, a small town. Uh, it was a five hour trip from the golf course back into Hong Kong. I can do that same drive today in my car in an hour, right? So it's, it's changed. And it was uh, when we, we still work quite a bit with Mission Hills and, and run their academies now, when we bring our golf professionals in from overseas, you know, they have McDonald's, there's a Starbucks on site. We had none of that, you know, but also, you know, that's what I saw as the opportunity, right? So you're there to shape the game. I mean, people would show up in, you know, high heels and clubs were still on the wrappers on them. They bought, you know, it was kind of wild, wild west, but you know, now, I mean, they've had PGA tour events. We took Rory and Tiger there in 2013 you know, Chinese, the economy's bloom. So they travel all the time. I mean, all my staff travel overseas. So you've really seen this appreciation for the game as well. You know, a lot of the guys have played great golf courses, played pebble, they travel all the time. So you've really seen the game change a lot, you know, which has been fun to see. And how have you been able to sort of ride that wave? Because you really got in early doors. Was a lot of it the sort of classic entrepreneurial angle of just say yes and work out how to do it? Or how did you approach it? Because your career has gone very diverse from obviously coaching to then the wider sports, the entertainment sectors. And that's, was that a big leap? Um, I don't know if it was a big leap. I mean, you know, when I left school, I joined Golf Tech, uh, which I, again, most golf course, golfers will know that was founded by a couple uh, friends of mine from college. And I enjoyed that and then quickly moved to the headquarters and ran their corporate event division. So I built kind of this desire to do something always a little bit different. Uh, and then when the opportunity came to come back to China, it was just channeling that. So I enjoyed teaching, but, it, you know, I honestly, I didn't want to stand on a range uh, eight hours a day forever. And I just kind of went step by step. So I started doing corporate events, which was similar to what I was doing in the U.S. That led to you know, working with Lagadere, you know, so similar to IMG and, their, and running their golf business, which was professional events and kind of the first developmental tour in China. And, you know, you're just looking at where there are opportunities, you know, and I think building relationships with people is always important, not just, you know, in China and the West, but, but everywhere, but especially China, because it's, you know, it's a very open place that, you know, you might see it politically as closed, but actually super easy to start a business, it's fast moving. And if you, you know, can show value in what you're doing, 
you know, the opportunities are kind of endless and just, you know, running with it from there. It really sounds like a lot of that is about your relationships then. And if I'm thinking about, you know, just a number of I've worked with in the past and a lot of PGA professionals in, uh, in the UK, but in Scotland in particular, and I would imagine that a lot of them would look at you know, just looking at your LinkedIn page to get that idea of like the progression that you've made from standing on the range doing lessons to doing what you're doing now. There's probably not that many people that I would think of in the industry that have made that progression, but also that it might seem relatively daunting to think, how can you go from there to there? And, you know, do you think, is it your belief that that has really just been down to your mindset around building relationships and you know obviously you talked about the connection with being a, a PGA professional and engaging with people in the corporate world but many many PGA professionals do that they engage with people in the corporate world all the time uh, what was the difference or was there a difference between the way that you engaged with those people or were you did you at some point did a, a, a switch flick then you went hold on a minute like I should I should really try and work out how I can learn from these connections and their experiences to try and elevate myself to other roles like this, or, or how did it come about? Um, well, I don't know if it's different because it's just what I do naturally, but I, you know, I, I think one of the neat things was sport in general, right? So our business, we do golf, basketball, tennis, uh, we're just, we're just about to launch football, but I think especially golf, you know, if you look at as a coach, the amount of time that you're spending with someone, right? So you're spending a significant amount of time with them. They're trusting you. They're, you know, they're investing money in you or you're helping them buy you know, three or $5,000 set of clubs. You might be playing golf with them. So you have four or five hours, you know, you can really build a strong relationship. And then if you look at the type of people, if you're at a private club or, you know, again, the easy example for me is when I moved to Hong Kong, I'm teaching, I happen to be teaching, you know, the president of FedEx, right? So we became good friends, you know, play golf together, you know, as I started to do some events, I said, you know, what are you doing for corporate events? Who's running those uh, for you? So you have to just think about that. You know, where can you use your relationships and work your way? And now he didn't give me the events, but he said, you know what? I'm happy to introduce you to our event manager. You're welcome to pitch. And it was always very black and white and, and he didn't influence it. But, you know, obviously that person then took my phone call and uh, that led us to getting that business. And I think we had that business for, for five years, right? So, and I, you know, you look in golf, the type of people that you interact with, you know, really opens those opportunities. I think most golf professionals have that, right? I mean, you, you know, you have the guy, you know, who runs a company or is entrepreneur or spending time. So you can talk to them and think, you know, how can I, you know, add value to him or, or you know, leverage, leverage that relationship. I'm going to jump over to Adam on this one, actually. Just Adam, with all the, the connections and conversations that you have with people who are PGA professionals, directors of golf and so on, do you think that those who have traveled abroad into other cultures have become more successful in the way that they've developed those relationships and leveraged those relationships to progress their career in ways like Ray's done than those that have maybe stayed in their native country as a PG, particularly in the UK, you know, let's just say GB and I, those that haven't moved, do you think they've made those same levels of progression? I think it depends what you mean by progression. I think um, people that have gone abroad have, have developed a, a wider skill set and I think definitely have developed the personal skills. I think they've been able to 
just see the world in, in, in different ways, um, which is naturally what you get through traveling, but I think working in different countries. And I think that enables you to spot opportunities and not just only spot the opportunities, but seize the opportunities like sort of Ray has done, where they're a bit more vivid and actually to go from A to B can be a little bit easier because you are mixing with the right people. So it'd be an interesting one. It's going to be a, a, a subjective answer, but it's, yeah, I think it's, it's a, there's definitely, I'm sure, a correlation between people going abroad and, and being able to develop up to that next level and, and, and have a, a more interesting career pathway, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Would you, what would you say, Ray? Well, I mean, I've been overseas now for 20 years. So most of the people in the, I guess that we call expats, uh, they've made that choice, you know, but, you know, especially we, we see from GB and I, we have a, a, quite a few, you know, PGA professionals that have come over and worked with us, they travel really well. You know, look, and if you, you have to be open, if you want to go overseas and, and I think like if you back up in the say early nineties, you had kind of the expat package. I mean, it was a hardship, but those days are all gone. Right. And, you know, you have to come in and show value. Right. So if you're open to working hard, you know, doing stuff that's creative and then really, and I think this is any job, but I mean, you have to, if you want to make good money and do stuff, you, you have to show the value and what you're bringing to the business. I think the, the days of, you know, in the U S being a, a club pro or an assistant pro and waiting to get the head professional job and you own the golf shop and you own the cart, those days are gone. And, and of course, everybody has a tendency to blame, say, you know, corporate management groups and they're pushing down the prices. But I think also the, the reality is if you're just standing in a golf shop and telling people when to tee off, like you're not going to make a hundred grand a year or 200 grand a year. It's that, like anybody can do that job. But if you can go in and do that and create great programs that incentivize more people to play the game, you know, do creative stuff for, I don't know, for example, club fitting, you can still drive great revenue. You know, is it exciting F and B options? You know, there's lots of creative stuff. And if you can drive that, then whether it's a management company or still a private club, you know, they're going to see value in that. And then you can, you know, push for that kind of compensation that you want. Yeah. And I mean, obviously the approach of going abroad and and so on and uh, learning new cultures and so on, it isn't necessarily for everyone. And, you know, if I take my own career example, I would stayed in Scotland and being Scotland and being golf, I could have stayed there for my whole life quite easily. And there are progressions you can make. There are value that you feel that you can add. But having stepped out of that for, I guess, sort of family reasons and then tried living in Barcelona for a while and pandemic came along, which caused us to come over to Greece for a bit. We don't quite know where we go next. But all of those experiences, I whilst there were some stressful moments in between certain points and the whole resettling and the bureaucracies in different places and so on, like there's definitely something I feel different about myself in terms of the way that I'm viewing things. And certainly looking back and looking back at a number of people that I still connect with in the industry that are in the position I was in before, you realize how your, your, your thinking is quite limited. And actually, even if, even if I wasn't sort of doing things like gather just now, I would still be looking back and going, wait a minute, why were we thinking that way back then? Like you're really, you're not forcing yourself to just shake things up a little bit. So yeah, I think that's a certainly an interesting one to consider for some of the people that are listening to this. And, you know, what can you learn even in the first instance from just talking to some of these people in the industry 
like yourself, like many of the other gather members, like Tim Neal, who we had in the podcast, who've moved abroad, like not you know the the nuts and bolts of your day job, but what was the decision making process like, and what was the cultural change, and how did that affect you, and how does that affect the way you now view the golf industry? I think all these questions are kind of important now. And jumping on that angle of media, obviously China over the last sort of 10 years has sort of been received very interestingly over here, more in the Western world, about where it sits in the golf industry. I always remember going to Shanghai in 2015 for the IMG Golf Business Forum. And that was, I think, timing-wise, one of the worst events where (laughs) I think just as they launched that event and it was due to start then obviously that the government kicked in and started restricting golf. But what I hear a lot of, maybe a little bit less now, but especially over the last five years, is China has always been used as a bit of a distraction when looking at golf numbers and global golf to say, look over there, China's doing really good and it's going to be great and it's going to be the next big powerhouse. And we don't have to worry so much about our domestic markets because globally the, the game is growing. Being in China and, and having that experience, where does China really sit? Because we still haven't seen lots of PGA Tour players in in the male side. We've obviously seen some females come through, but it still seems like a bit of a sleeping giant. What's your take on just where China's at? And actually, is it going to be a big player in the next 20 years or, or is it still just going to take time? Yeah, so you have to unpack it a little bit and, and decide, like, talk about what aspect do you want. So you know, club sales, merchandise, separate from elite development, you know, so I, I used to manage how Tong, so great kid, expect him to win a major. I think you'll see some more. Obviously, I'm, part of my business was working with the PGA Tour on the PGA Tour Series China uh, on hold now because of COVID and, and hopefully coming back. And I think that pathway works really well. So what the tour has done with both the McKenzie tour, uh, tour Latino America, and obviously providing that pathway to Corner Ferry works really well. I mean, you had Hao Tong go through, go to web.com, then obviously one global China Open has been playing mostly on the PGA Tour, but, you know, Zhangqing Jun, Doja Chung. So I think you're seeing that. I mean, again, the, the game's 30 years old, right? So, I, you know, and you had Guan and, you know, when he made the cut in 2013 at, at Augusta, and Jin Chung, who's, you know, been there twice. So I, I actually think they've done really well. It's just everyone's expectation is like a skyrocket, right? I mean, you had... On the women's side, Feng Kanshan, she's number one, won a bronze medal. Uh, you know, so I think everyone is, is just like, you need to give it a little bit of time. And, you know, when you look at talking about golf course closure, again, I think maybe misrepresented in the Western media in that, at least in the golf media, that it was an attack on golf. I don't really think that's what it is. If you really understand it, they went through every industry and looked at anti-corruption, um, land use. You know, how did you? You know, how did someone build a factory? Was that the right type of land uh, that they used to build that factory? Golf's the same way. So, you know, average course is 175 acres. Maybe 160 that was deemed, you know, appropriately, and then they went and, you know, kind of maneuvered to get the last 15, and, and that ended up causing them problems. So you know, as a sport, as a whole, it's okay. And, and obviously with it returning to the Olympics has helped. You've seen a massive movement and we see this in accessibility uh, for junior golfers. So even the private clubs, 
you know, there's a lot, lot easier access for juniors to play, especially on the weekdays, sometimes as cheap as or inexpensive as $20 around, which again, I'm not saying it's super inexpensive, but you know, there's a large rising middle class that can, that can afford that. And even, you know, it's much easier for us to organize junior tournaments. I mean, I know that we work with the CGA quite closely on that. They just released their schedule. I mean, it was crazy. It was a couple hundred events right, across everything, you know, at the, at the say development level at a professional level, you know, you also have to have it be sustainable. So is there investment in prize money and running events and can you balance that? Again, I think that that takes time. I mean, you know, again, we did Tiger Rory a few years ago, the HSBC is a huge, you know, tournament. I think it's 10, 11 years in the making. Uh, they just renewed for five more years, which HSBC announced. So they're a huge supporter of the game. Uh, I think you'll see that grow, but it, it really just takes more, more time. And I don't anticipate seeing a ton of new courses. I don't think that the land, the land aspect is going to change. I know the RNA would love to do some sustainability golf courses there. Right. So I, I've talked to them about a little what they're doing in China and Colin, you would know this more and uh, Dominic Wall, who, who uh, you know oversees Asia for them, is spending a lot of time on that. So I think if you can get that, but that again, that's just going to take time. You know, working with the local government to—is it on a landfill or, or something like that? But if you give them more time, I, I think you'll—you know—you'll definitely see. You know, whether it's Hao Tong or the next Hao Tong coming, you know, you'll see some guys that play on the tour consistently. We're going to switch tack a little bit here. We're going to talk about. The development of golf as uh, an area which I'm particularly interested in. So I'm basically looking for you to give me all the, the golden nugget answers here that the development of the game has been looking for. So low expectations there for you, Ray. First of all, how do you perceive the golf industry in the, let's just say the developed countries of the UK, the US, and some of the countries in Europe, now that you've been in the East for as long as you have, how do you perceive those industries when you kind of look back and read things or learn things or talk to people back in those areas? I mean, everyone wants to make the game as big as possible. And, and again, it's that cliche of how do we get it's women, juniors, everyone into the game. And, and I think there's been a lot of progress. I think, again, everyone's expectations sometimes is a, is a little high. You know, I like the stuff that, again, working with Augusta, you look at drive, chip and putt, uh, what they've done, the women's amateur you know, you need some aspirational aspects to it. And they're taking, you know, a storied club that is steeped in history and tradition. And, you know, I'm sure you guys have been there. You, you know, you, you're laying on the grass, you can't put your shoulders back, you get yelled at, all that. But then they go in and open it up on a Sunday. And if you're there for drive, trip and putt, and, you know, I've been there a couple of years during that, you know, the players are walking around and, you know, we did some, some video work for them. And there was a young Chinese girl who won the first year. And you look at the joy in that. And that's something she's going to remember forever. And the views that got back in China, you know, were crazy. Uh, and then you look like PJ Junior League. I think they're at 40 or 50,000 kids participating in it. Again, you know, it's bring a friend who hasn't played golf, you know, scramble format with a jersey. You know, so you have to, again, be creative and then just keep pushing. It's not that it's ever going to overnight um, change because at the end of the end of the day, it's still golf. Right. And I think you still want to have playing 18 holes or playing a 72 hole competition as well. Right. You just, I think, as you alluded to earlier, you don't want to destroy what it is as well. You just want to reshape it a little bit. 
Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that I've learned the most is that actually the perceptions of golf, particularly if you're based in the UK and, and even Europe to a certain extent, and I, I certainly hear this conversation or read it about it in the, in the media from the US as well, is that there's a lot of things wrong with golf, there's a lot of things broken with the industry, when in actual fact, you know, I got a sort of some snippets of insights when I was at the RNA of looking at what's going on in different countries and then speaking to people like you, speaking to other people we've had on the show and, and we connect with through Gather, there's actually great work going on around the world. And a lot of the times it's actually a very um, uh, inward looking perception of the industry from people based in GB and I, but also I think it's just an expectations thing. As you said there, it's like, you know, golf's very, very young in China. And actually if you that's actually pretty exceptional. And I think, you know, when we listened to Tim Neal as well, it was the same in South Korea. So yeah, I think there's, um, there's definitely a bit of expectations that, that need to be um, checked in some cases. One thing that might help with this in, in let's just say the more developed golf countries is this nut that Adam talks about sometimes that, that we struggle to crack. And that is, can golf development be profitable? You know, and it's got this stigma of being golf development, even just the words golf development, it's good for the game, but it's not commercially exciting. And I would say that's been something that I've probably even said myself in roles that I've been in in the last five years. It feels like if you're working on golf development or that's your title or in your golf development department, you're doing the philanthropic work that you spend some of the profits that come from the people who do all the hard work connecting with commercial partners and making the money rather than seeing golf development as like, this can be a profitable and, a, or, a, and or a sustainable business. And that's something that speaking with Adam personally, he's always kept saying to me, is like, you'll never crack that nut until you just find a commercial model for that. What's your experiences in this? I think there's probably two aspects on it. One, uh, I think in a broader part, I think most of the governing bodies and a lot of the people investing in the game are trying to do that. They're trying to be different. So whether it's, you mentioned RNA, European Tour, you look at what they did and their support with the LPG and the LET. So I think people are trying to be dynamic. And I think a lot of the governing bodies or, or senior leaders in the industry get hammered all the time on that. And, and I do think, one, I know they spend a ton of money on it. And the PGA Tour spends a ton of money. And I think all the bodies do. Uh, you know, in terms of, but yeah, at the heart of it, I think, is it sustainable, right? And is there, you know, someone going to invest in it from a commercial aspect? Uh, you know, they're not, unless it works, right? And you can have that philanthropic aspect, and that's a big, a big aspect to it. And I think that's good. I mean, I, I don't know if I have the full answer. I mean, we looked at it uh, in part of our discussion with the PJ of America and what we wanted to do in China. You know, so there's a, a very strong grow the game initiative, uh, and that's part of. The partnership we have with them, we have a commitment to both development as a commercial business for ourselves. Um, we have a CSR aspect to it in terms of uh, in the future providing you know free instruction to you know uh, I guess at need or or uh, you know public schools that type of stuff that we will do. We have a commitment to hiring a certain amount of PGA members, which to me is a very exciting exciting part. But then also, I think, you know, we have a business model that works, right? So, and we look at that, I guess, from our point in kind of a triangle of offering services in traditional golf courses. So a green grass facility, uh, like we have at Mission Hills, 
And at Mission Hills, we offer anything from a full-time boarding program, similar to what IMG offers at Bradenton. So we have an on-site, you know, high school, or actually K through K through high school, a uh, UK Bromsgrove, a really good UK school. So our kids can do that. We have 25 kids in that program, you know, go to school half the day and come see us the other half. And it's hundred percent at the top of our pyramid because it's, you know, not inexpensive by any means, you know, but then we have facilities at driving ranges. And then, you know, right now we work with 40 or 50 international schools and private schools in, in China where we offer ASA after school activities or extracurricular activities. So these are people maybe who don't even play the game. And we just did an assessment for Harrow, Harrow International School in Shenzhen. We put, I think, 500 kids through a one-day assessment. So they've never touched a club. Um, that's free and, and let them, and then they can sign up for, you know, a, a semester long program where they're getting one or two hours of instruction. I'd say, honestly, the average cost of that is probably 10, $20 US a week, right? And the hope is that they like that, you know, maybe once that semester, they're going to go to Mission Hills, you know, be on, you know, on course, you know, we want to continue to develop that. And then we have indoor facilities as well. And, and again, those indoor facilities are for us aimed more mass market. So again, group instruction. So we kind of build like an indoor driving range with a little bit of tech, you know, and they're doing class size anywhere between four and probably six or eight kids to, to one instructor. And again, affordable, right? So, so for us, that's, you know, around $20 an hour. And we want to be able to then provide that pathway. So again, our philosophy is we're not necessarily trying to find the next Tiger Woods. I mean, we can provide that. We, we have that. But really, you know, we want to teach. I think we do about 2,000 kids a week right now. We want to beat 100,000 kids across all of, our, all of our sports, right? So if you, you know, you know, that's a couple hundred thousand kids in golf, if I think about it, or 20 or 30,000 kids in golf, if I think about it. You know, and then the business model works, right? Because, you know, it's less affordable, but we're teaching primarily group instruction, you know, versus one-on-one, -on -one, which is, you know, I guess if you thought about even me when I was teaching, just standing on a range teaching one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, so we can pay the pros a little more money. It's more affordable for kids. And, uh, and then we get more revenue per hour, right? So you can look at it, yeah, you know, or you sell memberships. You know, we also typically sell in a, in a, you know, in a month or, you know, in a semester, right? So then it's sustainable. And then, you know, then people are willing to invest. We, we did a series A, you know, the numbers work and if you can scale it, then, then it works. A million dollar question, right? From your learning so far with this sort of golf development model, which, which sounds like it's doing um, amazing numbers. And, and ticking quite a lot of those key objectives where it's the commercials or the golf development angles. Taking your knowledge now to say the UK, to America, to try and replicate it, obviously different markets, different um, sort of needs, different price points. What would your advice be? Or how would you attack a, this model in, in a sort of established golf market? What are the key strands that you would look to bring in yeah, I think it's a little harder in a golf market. I mean, the, the nice thing is we're, we have competition in China because there's, I think, literally 6,000 other coaches, um, you know, that have gone either through the CGA training program or not. We have a great partner like the PGA of America. We have awesome facilities, right, you know, that we've been able to partner with thus far. But at the end of the day, still 100% driven by the coaches, right? And that's, that's really, really key. But I think what's really 
interesting and you're seeing a lot of change is tech, right? So, I mean, I, I, like I mentioned before, I work for Golf Tech and you look at what they're doing, but I've had some interesting conversations recently, one with FlightScope. So they have the Mevo, you know, me, the Mevo Plus uh, and the Rapsodo guys. I talked with them last week. So you're really looking at the cost of tech come down, you know, and again, I think when I left college and I was first at Golf Tech, a studio for us costs $60,000 to build, right? So it was, you know, this huge video system. And then we used a 3D system and, you know, that's expensive now, like your iPhone, you're shooting in, you know, 8K, right? Super slow motion, uh, you know, so you can do awesome, you know, awesome video. You can buy affordable launch monitors, you know, so you can, if I was going to look at it, it's how you can communicate with the clients. Can you do stuff online, right? I mean, that's a different revenue aspect, but, uh, you know, there's tons of guys doing online lessons. What's it, the me and my golf guys, I follow those guys. I think what they're doing is awesome. I mean, they're not even teaching golf now. They're just, I think, doing that, you know, 100% of the time. So now can everyone beat them? Probably not. But but I think you can take aspects of that and, and build from it, right? So like, I don't know, if I went back to my hometown, of course, you need something to start with. So if you have a base, a golf course that you're at, then can you go work with some schools and offer those same type of programs? Like in the U.S., I, you know, PGA Journal League, can you start that? You know, can you use a little bit of tech? I mean, I think that's, again, the neat thing for us is in our school programs, we're looking at how we can build these kind of portable, maybe they have a, you know, a net that's set up all the time, but then you can, you know, now, you know, for a couple thousand dollars, get ball flight, right? And video, and video is basically free, right? I mean, there's so many apps to do that, or we use Coach Now, which is, again, a great partner on that. You know, so you can offer a pretty cool experience that then, you know, kids like that. They want the tech, they want to see stuff. You want to be able to communicate with the parents. So, you know, I try to be, I don't think it's easy, but I think you can do that. And then you just want to keep that. Like you have to, you have to communicate with people. You have to paint a vision, a picture. So what's the pathway, you know, that they're going to go through. But again, I think most of the organizations do that well. I mean, the PGA of America has the play golf. They have, you know, their sports academy. So you can utilize some of those tools. And I know GBI has that. And, you know, I, I know, Colin, do you know the guys at Golfin up in, mm-hmm. Scotland. Yeah. yeah. So we've been, you know, we've been talking to them a lot about doing some stuff in China. I like what they're doing in school. So they have that mm-hmm. STEM, you know, that STEM curriculum that they use. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I know that's working well for them from a financial aspect as well. So, you know, they get and they drive that primarily through PGA professionals teaching that, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. so again, and then, you know, the PGA professional can work with the, you know, the PE teacher, uh, teach them how to do it you know, and then they provide the on-course experience or go to the school every once in a while. You know, again, I think the price point that they usually charge is affordable. And then it, you know, you create that pathway and then then maybe you're doing private lessons at, you know, whatever, a, a little bit higher price, you know? So I think it's doable. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny now because this happens on almost every podcast race. It's like, oh, wait a minute. There's another reflection on my career that just hits me square between the eyes. Oh, I really wish I'd had this conversation 10 years ago. Um, but, it, you know, it's, it's a reflective thing that you only learn afterwards. And as part of Club Golf, which was a, a big national junior golf program in Scotland, which was my first sort of career in the golf industry, even though I played golf for a long time, you know, I was totally embedded in that and really passionate about what we were doing. But we were driven by government money in Scotland, which was, you know, as part of the Ryder Cup. So it was a, 
you know, we believe probably like to that point, the biggest invested or biggest investment in a junior golf program on a national level, probably anywhere in the world. There was huge amount of learnings from that, but there's a lot of things that you would learn that you would do differently as a result of it. And there was, there was great things about it, even although there was, you know, at times you, you could be open to criticism about certain things, but that was, that was for oh, seven years, at least, or eight years, an approach of, I guess, a sort of a philanthropic, the route that we were talking about earlier. It's like government funded, you know, this should be that. And yes, clubs were encouraged that they should charge kids so that there is a business model there, but it was like, you know, let's do the absolute minimum and, let's engage pros but let's like make it make it the right price point but it was very much a sort of development inverted commerce program it wasn't viewed as a commercial model at all perhaps that was the only way around to do it because it was such an established golfing market such as such as culture in the golf clubs around scotland but you look at it now and it's like at the time you know golfing and a few other uh, brands and sort of providers were out there and we were quite defensive if we're being honest we're kind of like well, you shouldn't have to pay that, you know, you shouldn't have to get everything can be affordable if you do it this way and that way. But there's definitely strengths looking at both approaches now because expecting clubs to do things very much off their own passion and, and having to get a golf club committee in an established country like Scotland to agree and then having to make sure that the next year's committee and the next year's committee and the captain after that all think, yeah, this is a good thing we should keep doing. They just look at it in many cases as, well, that's that kind of volunteer thing that's going on over there and this, the assistant pro gets some extra hours out of it and that's it. And it's good to see some extra kids around the club, but they, they don't they don't think it's any more valuable than that to the club. When in reality, we were sort of trying to, trying to paint a picture and say, you realise how valuable this programme is as an asset to your golf club as a long-term thing. And they, they couldn't really see it that way. And, it, and it's interesting to think now, you know, if things are done on that more commercial approach, with companies who are reinvesting and reinvesting and reinvesting in their product and then their sort of supporting programs and their online resources, like maybe those things might be more sustainable. Yeah, I like that. And I, you know, the other aspect around that is, you know, you have to look at an opportunity to go to another entity to create the money, right? So everyone needs, you need to, you know, the golf professional needs to be compensated for the time and everyone can donate a few hours for developing golf. But at the heart of it, if you want to grow it and expand it, you know, could you go to a company that, for example, I mean, this HSBC is a classic example, right? They, you know, if you look, they have a junior program in China, their tournament series that they sponsor, you know, but part of that, you know, they want access to the parents, right? So, you know, can you create something, a company that's maybe willing to sponsor it, to fund it? And again, it doesn't have to be HSBC where they're dumping, you know, you know, tens of millions of dollars into it. It could be, you know, a smaller local business that, that's willing to do something where they provide you, you know, it could be a, hundred, a couple hundred dollars, right? Uh, you know, a month or something that says, let's do this. I'm going to bring families out and then they're going to have the opportunity to interact with the parents and, and you know, provide them a service or a product. You know, you got to, I think you have to be creative. I mean, at the heart of it, if you're just going to stand around and, I don't know, as a golf coach and stand on the tee and wait for people to show up, I, I don't think you'll be very busy. <laughs> so, but if you are creative and can go out and, and think of different things, I do think there's lots of opportunity. I mean, part of it's being for me personally, I'm willing to take a little risk because at the worst, I know I can always go teach golf and make a living. Um, you know, and I still enjoy that. I still, you know, to, to hop on a tee and, and work with, you know, some of the students and especially the kids, but 
you know, if you have confidence that you can build a book of business and do that, then it kind of provides you the, you know, the opportunity to, to be, to you know, maybe jump a little bit uh, to go get something if you want to. And talking about your, your sort of career in education, obviously you've got the PGA background. If, if all goes wrong, you can go back to the lesson T, but something in your career, I noticed you did an MBA. Not many people I come across in the golf space and golf industry have, have done an MBA. What's your experiences? Because it's a question that I get and have to field quite often now where outside of the, the working golf association, the industry associations, people are looking to, to start educating themselves at a higher level. What's, what was your experiences and how applicable has it been to your career? Yeah, it was something I always wanted to do. So when I left school and was living in Chicago, I'd actually applied to Kellogg there and then moved to the headquarters to Denver. So I so I'd never uh, didn't get to, to go through the program. Then when I was back in Hong Kong, they have a joint program in Hong Kong. And I think it was something I personally wanted to do, you know, more just a personal, personal choice, but it was really interesting. And actually, I think I valued more doing it later. So I did an executive, an executive program and that program is pretty unique at, at the time. Well, I, even this year, I think it was number, number one in the world, but you were with a lot of seasoned executives from different industries and in, in that program specifically doesn't I, obviously I think I was the only sports person in it. And I don't know if I saw one guy this year as, uh, as a sports person. So I need to reach out to him, but very few sports people in, in it. It's obviously kind of highly finance driven a little bit, but you meet a lot of neat people. And, uh, and actually, I, I think Colin talking about, you know, what you were mentioning, I found the case studies fantastic, right? So, I mean, normal college was just kind of the rudimentary stuff and my brain shut off for most of it and until maybe I got to some of the kind of more unique business classes. But uh, at the MBA side, you're doing a lot of case studies, right? And that's very applicable if you want to go out and kind of be creative and do some stuff. So I thought that was really neat. And then definitely the people you meet, I wouldn't say that uh, we've had a few, few of my, few of our classmates have actually invested in, in our current, current business, but I think you make some great friends. It pushes you. I mean, you, you learn all the normal stuff, time management as you're trying to juggle a job and, and do that. And for me, you know, I remember I finished it, I think in 2011, and I had an interview for, for a, another position right away. And that was a key thing that they liked, you know, and it led me to kind of get that. And, you know, it was expensive and it, I think I, I'd say it paid for itself after that one interview. Right. So I think it's a worthwhile investment. I definitely go to, I choose a school that the best school you can get into, you know, I, I'm not hundred percent sure of like doing an online one that you're doing it just to stick an MBA on your on your thing, I don't know how much value that is. Uh, I don't think it hurts if that's your only option, but uh, for me, I go to one where it challenges, I'd encourage you to do it in person. I think that's a lot of it personally. I mean, you can do tons of online stuff and, and that's great, but I think the value, so much of the value was talking through case studies and, you know, I don't know, I mean, learning how to do a regression analysis. I, I'm not using that in my day-to-day life at all, but, um, you know, just pushing yourself and learning new things is, to me, was really exciting. So I 100% encourage uh, anybody to do it. So. Would you say that you, maybe a, a challenging or an unfair question to ask, but I'll ask it anyway. Would you say that you would have set up your companies if you hadn't done your MBA? 
you know, thinking about your um, your I3 Sports and Pacific Pine in particular, I mean, looking back now, do you think there's things that somehow you know that you learned them and they're under the surface and they've kind of led you to set up those? Yeah, I mean, I3 I'd set up a long time ago. I think that, that I think I set that up originally when it uh, when I first moved back to Hong Kong and it started off again, just doing like little corporate events for banks. And then, you know, we use that entity to do our Tiger War event, you know, which I'd say for two years. So that's probably kind of the culmination and the clients we worked with. Pacific Pine, I'd say it's much more mature. So the I3 business really just kind of grew out of as it grew and, you know, we never raised any money for that or I don't think we're ever really going to sell it. It's just what it, what it is and kind of a little bit of me you know, the Pacific Pine Venture we set up in 2017, you know, with the explicit goal of, of creating something bigger, right? And indefinitely, you know, we raised a little bit of what we call it friends and family money at first, you know, and, you know, we've gone through a whole, you know, formal series A already, and, you know, we have 200 staff and definitely having an MBA thinking through just the you know, the nuts and bolts of it. So what is someone looking at? And, you know, our, our chairman was a good friend that again, I met playing basketball, right? So again, it goes back to sports and he's from a pure finance background, but you know, passionate about, about sports. But, you know, when you then from this standpoint, you know, we have a clear goal of what we want to try to do with the company, not necessarily to say go public or sell it to somebody or anything like that. But I think Adam, back to what you said earlier, is it financially viable or somebody willing to invest it? And not just to say you went out and raised money, but, you know, that gives you the tools and sometimes the flexibility, the freedom to do a little bit different things. And, you know, we were lucky enough to do that during pre-COVID, right? So as COVID hit and like many people, our basketball business especially went to zero overnight, right? You know, golf came back much quicker in China. And I think like everyone in golf, we've had a great year, you know, but it just, the NBA provided the tools to have the discussions with the, the people to say, you know, yeah, I'm passionate about golf. I'm passionate about sports, but how do I build a business case around it that's sustainable and justifiable? I mean, there's plenty of people, I mean, it's a cliched story, you know, how did you become a millionaire? Well, I was a, a billionaire and then investing in golf, right? Um, plenty of people lose money in, in golf. Um, but I think you, you know, with the right idea, you can, it's, you know, I don't have a problem asking somebody to, to invest in the company because I believe that we've built a, a business case that's sustainable, has good growth. And, and I think there's lots of people doing that right now. And there's some, I, I, to me, I think there's lots of exciting stuff happening in golf right now. Um, I'm very bullish, not just in what we're doing or in, in Asia. I look at the US and, and I see lots of cool stuff happening. So it sounds to me a little bit like, just the process of doing something like an MBA where you're completely well, potentially out of your depth a little bit to begin with, but you're certainly out of your own box of not just the golf industry, but the sports industry and connecting with all these different people. That is something that I'm starting to hear more of in some of the people that we talk to who are, you know, along the lines of the sort of stuff that you're doing and are, are certainly more comfortable talking about, you know, investments and talking with corporate partners and all these kind of things. And I, and I kind of sit back and go, Holy, like how, how can I learn or ever get to that point? And it's a lot of it is actually just kind of getting outside of your own box of the industry that you're in. And when you're in it for so long, you start, you actually don't realize how much you've become institutionalized to a certain extent. So it sounds like that's probably one of the things that you took from the MBAs as much as the actual, the content itself is just the confidence to look outside of your own field. 
hundred percent. And I think what you'll find is you can add a lot more value than you think you can. Right. I mean, that, for me, that was part of doing it. It's like, can I, can I go hang with these guys that are, I don't know, CEO or something of another industry, but you know, you sit in there and uh, one, everyone's the same, like whether you're a golf pro or CEO of someone, you're both put on clothes and, you know, take them off at night and, and all that. So I don't think there's any difference there, but when you get into these, whether again, like you're taking, doing a case study or talking about a problem and they're talking about some of their challenges, I think what you find in sports in general, again, golf specifically, you have a ton of value to add, right? So it could be something as simple as how do you, you know, deal with a, you know, a bad member, right? Or, you know, let's say a rule situation and, you know, you, you'll approach it, what you think is naturally because, again, in the golf industry or specifically as a golf professional, you know, you're a people person 90% of the time, right? And you're dealing with situations on the fly and, you know, that's any business, right? And you're putting out fires, you're doing all that. And sometimes you look at, so they're caught up in numbers, looking at a spreadsheet, doing this, you know, and you bring what you add to it and they're like, oh, wow, I didn't think of that. Or I need, you know, I need to drive sales and you might think of it, well, you could do this, Right. So, so I found that, you know, part of what I brought to it, maybe it wasn't necessarily hundred percent the, you know, I'm not running pivot tables in Excel or doing something like that, but you know, you added something else. And then from that, I thought, you know, what, there's a lot of benefit of what I learned. It could be something as simple as you take the guys that come from a consulting background, like a McKinsey or a Bain, you know, the way they look at a problem and compartmentalize it and say, okay, you know, they go through a very structured process in analyzing something and how they look at it's kind of always the same. And then, you know, every instance is a little different, but the base is the same. And we use that a lot in work, right? Just how do you approach, you know, again, we want to teach, we want to teach more kids. That's or we want to teach more golf lessons, but how can you segment it? What's the competition? You know, I don't know, SWOT analysis, all that little kind of basic stuff, but it, you know, tons of value there, right? So and from a, a sort of a mindset and a personal development perspective, do you, at this stage in your life and your career, are you consciously working on personal career development or habits or anything like that? And have you had any personal mentors during, during your career, especially some during some of those phases when you were maybe setting up new things? Definitely always trying to grow, right? I'm doing my... PGA specialized training right now. I think I've almost finished it. It's brutal <laughs> to be going through that. And I'm wishing I'm kicking myself because I think I started the uh, PGA master professional training back when I was first eligible, which is I think after seven years of membership and I'm at over 20 now. Right. So, and it was easier then. And the PGA's put all these layers, which are great. I applaud them for that, but it is uh, significantly more work. So I'm doing, doing that. And I think even for me, with our relationship with the PGA and obviously all the, the PGA members that we have working, I feel an obligation to have that and to go through that and to be able to, to say that I've done that. It is uh, it is a little challenging, you know, mentor wise. So I think you always want to continue to grow. I mean, I try to read, I'd love to say I used COVID and read a lot, not as much as I should, uh, but, uh, but I enjoy that. And you always want to learn different things. Personally, I, from like a, I think exercise is huge, right? I mean, I, you know, like to run a bunch or do CrossFit. I usually change what I'm doing once every, you know, two or three years. 
CrossFit for two years, running for two years, and then try something new. Like, I don't know, go learn tennis. I, I always, you know, one of the fun things I try to do is I take a golf lesson wherever I am. You know, just with, if I'm at a resort, I'll, I'll take a lesson from the, you know, from the guy there or, or go don't somewhere. Don't tell them you're a golf pro. Yeah. Um, I don't normally tell them right away. Uh, <laughs> exactly. You know, but I mean, hopefully when they see me, at least they go, you potentially played a little bit of golf. Um, <laughs> you know, the swing's okay. Uh, but like, I, you know, I take a lesson once every two, three weeks here from the, from our, um, the pro at the club here. Great guy, awesome teacher. And uh, for me, it's fun. You're always working on the game and stuff. So. And then you can always, if you're not learning, you're, you're probably stuck or you're just cocky. So I'm not, um, I'm definitely not the best golfer. So I can always, I can always work on the golf swing. Fantastic. It's great you brought up the health side because that was a question I was going to ask around. You're obviously busy, whether it was with the educational side, whether it's the work side. How much priority do you put in your diary to exercising and just looking after your health? Just again, coming back to the other word of sustainability for yourself. Being, being a busy sort of executive in, in industry. I, I mean, I do personally, I, I like it. And I probably, yeah, I work out almost every day, something, whether it's running or, or, you know, I enjoy lifting, even though I'm not a big guy, but um, yeah. So I'd say probably five days a week. If I'm, if I'm honest, I want to say every day and it goes through phases. I think COVID was nice uh, obviously because I, nobody flew. I mean, I used to fly, I don't know, something silly, like hundred, you know, hundred, 150 days a year. Right. So then it's harder, right. Cause if you go into a hotel and do you really want to go to the gym or you flow and work and then, but I, you know, I think it's a, like a mental break. Right. So I, I love playing basketball. I don't do it so much anymore because I'm a little older, but it's a release in golf is sometimes not quite that release because you can still think about work, but I enjoy doing something that pushes you where you have to concentrate only on that. So for me, that was playing basketball and with my friends relaxing. And all I thought about was basketball for that one or two hours. And, you know, maybe CrossFit's again like that, because if you're not concentrating on that, you're going to, you know, smash yourself in the head with a weight or something. Um, so I think doing something that's kind of high intensity that makes you turn off everything else. I mean, you can, I mean, I, I love playing golf and I probably play two, three times a week right now because I'm not traveling, but of course you can, the phone can still ring and, you know, you can still think a little bit. I try to do something where I don't have to, that just forces me to focus on that and not think about anything else. If there was one thing that we could leave the, I mean, you know, um, we're really grateful that you've been chatting with um, Adam and you know a little bit about the background of Gather and you've been kind of following what we're doing since we started. Let's just say if we could leave the, the Gather listeners and just the wider golf industry with a message, what might you say at the moment? I think, look, you want to take some risks, have some fun. Uh, I wouldn't, I'd be very positive on the industry. I mean, I think look at what you guys are doing and it just popped up in LinkedIn and obviously Adam and I, we work together on, you know, a bunch of work stuff and, and, you know, hopefully bringing more PGA professionals to Asia, but there's lots of people doing exciting stuff. And, and I, I sit on LinkedIn for 15, 20 minutes a day, just scrolling through and looking at what different people are doing. I think you want to be positive. It's very easy to be negative. Like, like you were saying, everyone bashes on industry leaders and what's the game, what's bad about the game. I, I think there's lots of great stuff in sport in general, golf for sure. And then just go find something, you know, again, kind of cliche, go and find something, you know, that you enjoy doing. I, I mean, I'm 
super happy now because I love doing what we're doing and it seems to be working okay. And then also work with friends, you know, work with people you like to work with because I think that's hundred percent the best, the best part about what we're doing now. I mean, I think we have four friends that we all went to college together working, you know, we're have tons of PGA professionals on the team and I'm happy to get up early and have a phone call or, you know, live on zoom like we're doing now, but you know, just go out and crush it, have some fun. Love it. Well, I can definitely back up the concept of doing things with people you like. So I'm really glad that I'm doing gather with Mike and it's just, it just so happens Adam's tagging along for the, the ride as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Ray, just, um, yeah, that was fantastic. Really, really interesting conversation. And there's, there's threads that I would love to pull on much, much deeper on some of them. And I think there's just like learning after learning. But yeah, just as, a, as an introduction to things, that's, that's been fantastic for me. And just want to say a big thank you on behalf of the, the gatherer listeners. I'm very sure that this one's going to get a lot of interest, people listening to you. So expect a number of people viewing, more people viewing your LinkedIn page over the coming weeks, hopefully. My pleasure. Enjoyed it. Love what you guys are doing. And uh, yeah, I mean, we're always happy to help. And if there's other uh, PGA professionals that are interested in coming our way, we're hiring, hopefully post post COVID. Well, we're definitely hiring, but <laughs> post COVID when travel opens back up, lots of uh, lots of opportunities. So always ha- happy to, to chat with anybody. So yeah, look forward think- to a round of golf together for sure. So yeah, well, I think South Africa sounds appealing to me. I don't know about you, Colin, but yeah, um, not for that. Yeah, my my new mantra is: if someone offers something, then just just snap them up uh, and take it. So you regret saying that because me and Colin, as soon as <laughs> as soon as the flights open up, we'll be uh, straight on a plane. But I think to the listeners, one note: definitely check out Pacific Pine Sports if they've got a chance, and this will give a bit of context to the conversation. But also, just a really really interesting model, and also as people see it it's not just golf you've got the the wider sports angle so check out pacific pines as just a case study as 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 ray said because these are the sort of case studies that people should be looking at thanks for your time Ray. really appreciate it thanks guys have a good afternoon